I'm sports attorney Luke Fedlam, and welcome to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. Each conversation, we focus on sharing information and having conversations around how athletes can best educate and protect themselves or their life outside of their sports. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Luke Fedlam, and we are here excited to have another episode, and this is one that I get asked about a lot. I've had conversations with athletes, with teams and front office personnel, player engagement staff at pro teams, parents, and so many others around this topic of athletes and deals. And so we're going to get into athletes and deals, private business investments and and business deals. And I have a great resource for this conversation, a friend and colleague, Ryan Steele. Ryan, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Ryan is one of my colleagues here at Porter Wright. He works in our corporate and securities department, and he is my go-to when I'm working with athlete clients And we have deals that are presented. He is one of the folks that I lean on in doing the analysis, the legal analysis for the deals that we have. And so I thought it would be great to have a conversation with Ryan just broadly, because I think a lot of times people don't necessarily understand kind of how deals work, what to look out for, and how to ultimately protect yourself. And I mean, hey, that is our podcast, Protecting Your Possibilities. So we want to make sure that you're getting some good information here to be able to put it into effect and ultimately protect yourself. So when we're talking about these deals, we're typically kind of talking about situations where someone wants you or wants an athlete to invest in a business opportunity, right? And so that could take on many different forms. We're going to get into that and and what that may look like. But as you listen to this conversation, kind of think of it in the sense of someone wanting to get an athlete to invest their money into this business opportunity. So Ryan, when that happens, what are some of the documents, right? What are some of the things that either the athlete or the parents of the athlete or the financial advisors, what are some documents that should be requested from the company that the athlete is investing in? Sure. And we may even get to this in a bit more detail later, but it really depends on on the life stage of the company. At a bare minimum, we want to see a term sheet that has the deal terms. As an entry-level point, you need to know what you're getting, and the term sheets usually give a, a decent amount of background information on the company. And that's a good threshold entry into, okay, what is this actual investment round entail? And then from there, you know, we'll, if, if it's a go at that point, the numbers look good, we've got a decent amount of information, kind of we pass that initial smell test. And then we'll start asking for more baseline governance documents, underlying agreements with the founders to get a sense for how good a shape this company mm-hmm. is in. Okay. So with the term sheet, like basically saying what the standard deal terms are, what should you expect to see on that, right? What what typically you're going to see in like a, a basic term sheet? Right. Well, I want to know what I'm buying and mm-hmm. how much of it do I get. And so if you're buying equity, the term sheet should say we are raising up to a million dollars and that is going to account for 10% of our company. So great. So I could do the math. So if I know I'm willing to put in $100,000, I know that gives me 1% of the company Mm -hmm. if they sell the whole round out. And that's really important. You need to know what your money is getting you. And so one of the documents that you should see even at the term sheet stage before asking for it is a cap table. We need to know who owns this company, who owns what, what kind of ownership do they have, because not all ownership is created equal. 
And those are the kind of things that we really start digging into at the beginning. Yeah, so so just to clarify that, so a cap table is, it really is like short for capitalization table and it tells someone how a company is capitalized. So who the owners are, what percent do they own, what type of or class of ownership do they have and that will then tell us what rights come with that. So So knowing kind of on the front end who the owners are, you should have that. You should have that cap table at the very beginning stages, as Ryan said, when you're even just thinking about the term sheet itself, right? When we think about that, okay, we've got the term sheet. I know that I'm investing you know, in this company. It's going to be X thousands of dollars that I'm going to be investing. Then these are kind of the terms. This is what I'll get out of it, et cetera. Then what, right? So let's say the term sheet looks great. We're feeling pretty good. And we start to get a capitalization table then what happens? What should what should we do next? So at that point, we should start looking at the documents that we talked about earlier. So the underlying governance documents, you know, do they have a shareholders agreement, an operating agreement, kind of depend on what kind of entity they are. And then, you know, most importantly after that is the actual investment documents themselves. If you're buying equity, there should be a, a subscription agreement, potentially a stock purchase agreement there. And if you're going to be purchasing what's referred to as convertible debt or just pure debt, there should be a promissory note and some other ancillary agreements. So we should get a full view of what's already in place, you know, what's happened from inception of the company to date, as well as what we are expected to sign as a part of that investment round. That's where we get involved oftentimes where we'll say to our clients, hey, these are the documents now that we need to request. And we do that because now we want to be able to understand what are all the terms of the actual kind of deal that we're getting involved in. So what is it that you're getting into? So when we think about whether it's a shareholder agreement, operating agreement, you know, et cetera, like it helps you to understand then what rights are you going to have? What protections might you have? What are some of the, the potential risks or red flags to you? So these are all kind of you know, documents that are going to help shape the picture of what this investment you know, is going to ultimately look like for you. Would that be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Because you see all, all kinds of things. Uh, you might think, hey, I'm buying 10% of this company. That's going to give me 10% of all of these rights or all of the rights to the money. And that's not always the case. Sometimes something would have happened beforehand where, well, the founders had actually granted themselves 10,000 to 1 voting rights in a different class of stock, or your 10% only gets paid after four other classes of stock before you get paid. And so there's a lot of analysis that needs done to really get down to what you're actually buying, because the term sheet by itself is not enough. It's a great entry point. It's a good go, no-go point, but it really does take a, a deep dive into the agreements that are in place as well as the deal documents so that we can give you a better picture of what you're actually purchasing with your money. No, that's, that's so good. And I think it's so important, right? To understand what it is that you're actually buying. Because sometimes somebody may sell you by saying, hey, I'm going to give you 10,000 shares or you give me this amount of money, I'm going to give you this many shares in the company. But that doesn't really mean anything if you don't have the broader picture, right? How many total shares are authorized? What rights come with this class of shares that I'm getting, right? I mean, there are so many other things that come with what you're actually purchasing beyond what you've been sold on the front end. Absolutely. And sometimes we can even find out that the board of directors or the officers may just be able to issue more shares at will, or that there's a big pile of equity compensation shares, which are given to consultants that are going to dilute you down. So yeah, 10,000 shares without context 
means nothing. Because especially in Delaware, where a lot of these companies are formed, you can pretty much authorize an unlimited number of shares. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. So what about structure? So if, if you get to the point where it's like we've got the term sheet, we've got the capitalization table, we've gone through these documents and we're saying, hey, these documents, you know, maybe we're making some edits and negotiating those terms. But what about the structure of the investment to the athlete? And what I mean by that in particular is I think that there are times where athletes, you know, when I'm having conversations with athletes, it's like a deal is presented to them and they feel like it's very much a binary decision. Either, yes, I'm going to do it or no, I'm not going to do it. And oftentimes they get sold on that business idea and they want to do the deal. But the structure can change, right? I mean, how, how would that work? I mean, can you change the structure of a deal kind of through negotiating or by having kind of a plan for maybe I don't want to do this as an equity deal. Maybe I want to do it as a loan or what would that look like? Yeah, so it really depends on what your position is and, and what your leverage is in the deal. A lot of times you're coming in and there's been what's referred to as a lead investor that has negotiated the deal terms. Sometimes it'll be a large venture capital firm. At that time, you don't really have a lot of say. In it. Yeah. If they're if the lead investor is coming in for five million and you're coming in for fifty thousand dollars, that's yeah. a little bit more take it or leave it. But if this is truly a startup and this is something that comes to you and maybe it's an acquaintance and you're going to be the first money in or you're going to be the most money in, then absolutely. I mean, it's your deal at that point. So whatever the the company comes to you with is not necessarily the end-all be-all. You absolutely have a right to restructure it, negotiate the deal terms, change the deal entirely from debt to equity or vice versa. So if you're listening to this, you're getting a good sense of the excitement that I get whenever I work with Ryan because he clearly knows what he's talking about and is able to communicate it well as well. But I think, Ryan, you just hit on something that is so important to discuss, which is this idea of startups, especially when they come from acquaintances, friends, family, etc. So Here's the issue, right? The issue is that a lot of times you have a startup that is just trying to get going. They're not trying to spend a lot of money on legal fees to get, you know, investment documents drafted and things along those lines. You know, they may have a relationship with that athlete and say, hey, we really want you to come be an investor. And the athlete's probably going to be either one of the first investors or one of the biggest investors. And so because of that acquaintance or familiar relationship, they may say, yeah, we don't really have the documents, you know, because we haven't spent the money on legal. Like, but you know us, right? You can trust us. I mean, what do you you say to that? I know what I say to that, (laughs) but I'm going to let you go first. What do you say to to those kind of situations? Well, I never try to be the one to say no to a a business opportunity, but that is some of the riskiest money you can invest. And what makes it so risky? You have no operating history in place. You do not have the legal framework that would give you as much protections as you can. And so one of the big protections that we look for when advising investors is the intellectual property. Has the company taken all the steps necessary to secure its intellectual property rights? So if you hire a consultant and let's say you're a tech startup and they're doing some coding work for you and they have not executed an assignment of inventions agreement, they maybe don't own as much of their property that they think they own. So at the beginning, we don't have a a nice complete set of legal documentation. We really don't have any revenue. So valuing the company becomes much more difficult the earlier you are. It's, It's very risky money. So what we've seen in the marketplace, and there are venture capital firms that focus on startups um, and do founding and seed round investments, those documents are very founder friendly. They're often secured with liens on any assets. You have a lot of leverage at that point. So, you know, our advice to clients that 
are approached with these type of investments from acquaintances is let's still be thoughtful with how we invest our money and not just take folks at their word. Because even with the best of intentions, things go sideways and we need to do everything we can do to protect your investment. Yes, yes. I come out outright and just say, no, don't do this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, I do, though, say I always want to understand why an athlete wants to do a deal. And I think that it's important to understand the why. Like, is this is this because I'm looking for a financial return? Is this because I really am interested in the business and want to kind of grow with this business for my own development? Is this an industry that I think is taking off and I want to kind of be involved kind of in this, you know, this new technology or this new way of doing things? Or is it just I want this deal to fulfill this part of my overall kind of asset allocation as I look at my overall kind of investment portfolio, if you will. But I'll never forget I had a client one time who asked about this was a real estate development deal. And I'm not a real estate attorney, but I was going to turn the documents over to our real estate team. And I said, yeah, send me the documents for this development deal. (laughs) And it was two pages long. And I'm like, okay, well, we can't really do a a real estate development deal on two pages, especially when we don't talk about who actually owns the land and all this other kind of stuff. But I asked the client, you know, why do you want to do this? And he had a number of reasons as to why around he was transitioning out of playing professional sports. He knew the developer. He wanted to grow with the developer and learn and all this kind of stuff. So we ultimately did it as a debt deal, right, where he just loaned the money as opposed to doing it with equity. And it, you know, ended up, you know, working out well for him. So I think understanding, right? And, and to Ryan's point, we don't want to just say no to, to clients. Sometimes we need to based on the red flags that we see, but we always want to understand why and figure out if there's a way to still structure something that can protect the athlete and their investment. But that brings up, a, I think, an interesting point around red flags. So when you're looking at deals and you're you know, kind of doing your legal analysis on, on deal documents, deal terms, um, and the underlying kind of documents that we've discussed, what are some of the red flags that really stick out to you that, that many people don't either think about or don't know to look for? Sure. So securities laws are, are very complex and, and they're, they're not common sense. And you know, I've been practicing now for 10 years and I'm still learning them as, as I go. But they're meant to protect the investor. And a lot of companies don't realize that. And so what we look for is a company that does take very careful consideration of securities laws, make sure to give us all the information that we expect to see, make sure to comply with all applicable state and federal securities laws. And if we don't see that, that's the first red flag. And that comes up at the term sheet stage. That comes up when we see the underlying governance documents. Have they engaged sophisticated legal counsel to help establish the baseline? Because as the company continues to grow, that's when these cracks in the foundation really start to become a problem. When you're a a young startup company and maybe we don't have employment agreements or maybe we don't have a a good operating agreement, it doesn't really matter, right? Mm -hmm. When you are now making millions of dollars in revenue and you're thinking about going public, a lot more eyes on you, a lot more money at play, that stuff starts to make a big difference. So as you enter into the world of investment, you're kind of exiting that startup in the garage space, we need to see some good underlying documents. And we need to see that the investment documents are prepared thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not done right, there's what is referred to as a rescission claim by your investors. So an example of this is, let's say the company wants to raise a million dollars, and it's doing so under a securities law exemption that lets us sell to an unlimited number of folks, but we can't advertise, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very common one. 
but they've reached you, an athlete, through some means of general solicitation or advertising. Well, they have now blown their exemption, and anybody mm-hmm. that invests in that round now can come back and claim and get their money back, basically. And that's going to devalue your investment, even if you want to stay in it, because mm-hmm. now the company has to spend that money plus legal fees, giving folks their money back that yeah. were unhappy or were misled. So what seems like, oh, well, we didn't do this right in the first place, down the road, there's opportunists, there's bad actors that see an opportunity to come make some money and will then, you know, make a scene and get their money back. And, and it, it then hurts your investment significantly and can sometimes be the end of a company. And we've seen that happen. Wow. Wow. Yeah, definitely things to, to look out for. And that's why, you know, in all of this, I think it's so important that, you know, anytime you're making an investment, you know, in a private business or, or other type of business investment, you really want to make sure that you have legal counsel reviewing the documents and doing the analysis for you to make sure just for those purposes that, that Ryan mentioned that you're protected. So, all right, we're about to wrap up here. But before we do, one last kind of area to talk about, which I think is probably most important that a lot of times people don't necessarily think about, which is how do you actually get your money back? All right, so you 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 decided, hey, I, you know, I invested in this business, whatever. I put X thousands of dollars into this business. Man, it's doing really well. What does that mean? Like, how do I actually get paid? So with a loan, it's easy, right? I I make a loan. I have an interest rate. I get paid back. You know, whether it's you know principal and interest, or just you know interest only, and then you know lump sum principal down the road. But when it comes to making an investment, especially an equity investment, how do I get paid? Yeah, and that, and that's a good point because it's it's often not as immediate as, as you would expect it to be and, and in a lot of cases not even at all. So with an equity investment, you're waiting for one of three things to happen. One, you're going to get paid dividends on your equity and for a startup company and an early stage company, that doesn't really happen. All that money is being reinvested in, in the growth of the company. So there's often not a lot of dollars to actually pay out to the shareholders in the early stages. The second is a public offering where now you can sell your shares freely because one thing to think about with an equity investment in a private company is you can't turn around and sell that equity. There's no public market for that uh, until the company takes the steps necessary to allow that. So if you're six months in and you say, you know what, I kind of want my $100,000 back, you're stuck. There's no way to get it back. Until those shares are freely traded on an exchange somewhere, there's not much you can do about it. And a lot of companies don't go public. And if they do, it takes five, seven, 10 years to actually get to that point. The third way and the most common way is the company sells. It has an exit either through uh, bankruptcy and liquidation or through a sale of the asset or the equity to a a larger competitor often or somebody else looking to grow into the space. And that's most common when you can expect to see some return on your capital. But by then, it's really hard to forecast what that's going to look like. There may have been three, four subsequent rounds of financing since your investment. They may have debt that needs to get paid first. It's hard to really gauge what your return is going to be. We can add certain provisions in there, and without going into too much detail on what those are, because that would be a whole other podcast itself, <laughs> we can try to guarantee some rate of return. But really, you're kind of hitting, hoping for a home run. You know, Venture capital firms that do this for a living make their money on you know 10 to 20% of their investments, right? I mean, mm. some of them just get through their money back, some of them are losses, and then they live and die off the home runs, right? Yep. Try to get you know 10, 30% depending on what market you're in. And so if you're just investing here and there, you kind of got to understand that you know there's maybe an 80% chance you're not going to get anything back and maybe at most your money back. So the money doesn't come easy and it doesn't come quickly. 
But if you do find the right investment, you can definitely see one of those home run returns. Awesome. Listen, thank you, Ryan, so much for joining us today on the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. Hopefully you all got a lot out of this conversation. Clearly, Ryan knows what he's talking about, doing great work in this space of protecting clients uh, when it comes to private investments. And I'll just say one last thing. As athletes, you always want to remember that people are going to target you to get you to invest in businesses and opportunities because you are a celebrity, because you are an athlete. And they can use your name to go out and get other people to invest by saying, oh, well, if so-and-so athlete is involved, you know, then, then I want to be involved too, or I want to be a part of that. They must know something or, or what have you. And so you always want to be mindful that you are doing your due diligence, your investigation or your analysis, not just on the opportunity itself, but also who's bringing that opportunity to you and for what purposes. So again, Ryan, thanks, my dude. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Again, thanks for tuning in to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. We are always looking for any feedback that you have, ideas for content and topics to discuss. Continue to share the podcast with anyone in your circle. Give us uh, five stars if you want to rate it somewhere and um, continue to just share the good word of the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. I appreciate you for listening. Thank you all so much. Have a great day. Porter Wright, Morris and Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. The content of this publication is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the firm as to any particular matter or those of its clients. Please consult an attorney for specific advice regarding your particular situation.